time to head out on the front porch on KFRM. Grab your favorite drink, sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversation on the front porch. Hi, this is Kyle Bauer, your host today on On the Front Porch. I'm uh, very glad to be able to get a hold of Wade Shepard. He is the author of Ghost Cities of China, uh, pretty much travels the world um, covering the business scene, has spent a lot of time in China and all through the developing world. We're going to be talking today a lot about the new Silk Road. And I know if you've listened to me talk from time to time, I've just been enamored and intrigued by the concept of opening a railroad, if you will, from China all the way to Europe. And in my opinion, the most foremost expert I can find and I certainly have access to is Wade Shepard. And so we're going to pick Wade's brain today. Thank you, Wade, for being with us. Hey, no problem at all, Kyle. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on. Well, let's talk about how you've gotten, if you will, into this beat um, and your background, uh, where you grew up and how you come to be having so much access and traveling China and the developing world so much as a writer. Mm-hmm. Man, Kyle, I grew up pretty much in the middle of nowhere in a little farm in town in between Rochester and Buffalo, New York. And when you grow up in kind of a place like this, you kind of always want to kind of want to find out what's on, you know, the other side of the field, right? What's what's over the next hill around the next bend, right? So it was kind of an isolated upbringing. But that kind of like uh, kind of like really planted the seed in me to like, you know, want to go out and see what the rest of the world was like. So when I uh, when I finished up high school, I pretty much left immediately. I traveled around the USA for about a year and then I ended up in South America. And then, then after that second year of traveling in, in South America, I was I was pretty hooked. Um, I went to a to an international university, which meant I studied in about five or six different countries. You know, study culture, study religion, study economics, kind of like on the ground. And after I graduated from that, I pretty much started doing the just kept doing you know what I was doing in school only professionally. So instead of like, you know, writing for my, you know, professors, I started writing for, you know, big major publications. I started writing books. But um, the fundamentals were were always pretty much the same, Um, going out to places on location and trying to figure out how these big changes that we see in the world today are kind of impacting people on the ground and on the person to person uh, level. And uh, yeah, that resulted in, you know, a pretty you know, a, a career that, you know, I kind of like, and I'm just able to keep moving around the world trying to figure out what's going on. Well, let's go back just a little bit. Uh, of course, you talk about rural um, farming communities. That's a lot of our listenership. You're in upstate New York. Uh, what did your parents do? My parents, oh, my, my dad, he uh, he worked at Rochester uh, back back when I was a kid, along with everybody else. And then uh, then, then he got laid off when, when Kodak uh we went to China and, and Mexico and uh-huh. like, like everybody else. <laughs> but unlike a lot of people who kind of moved away and kind of left that region and went south or, or to other places around the country, we, we stayed. And then, uh, then he started working for the University of Rochester. He's, uh, he's ah, man, what, what was he doing? He's kind of a technician. He kind of builds stuff and kind of invents stuff. So it um, kind, of, kind of like sheet metal or anything to do with anything mechanical. Mm-hmm. And uh, he had a son that ended up being completely useless in that regard. Well, that's where I was going to go when you you graduate from high school and you say, well, I'm going to take off. And it's um, 
their what was their reaction to that was it like well sure that's a great idea son yeah well they were just um they thought i was just kind of kind of young and needed to go out and like sow my wild oats or, or something like that right go out and have fun and you know have some adventures and then i would come back home and live a, a life like, like everybody else it was probably about 10 years in before they kind of realized that I wasn't coming back, right? And then uh, after I published my first book and, you know, they got a copy of it, they got a hardcover copy and they're just kind of looking at it. And then all of a sudden uh, what I was doing kind of became, it became real, right? Oh. And now they're, now they're full, fully supportive of, of what I do. But for a while there, they had no idea. They had absolutely no idea what I was doing. And you know, why I wasn't, you know, getting, you know, quote unquote, a, a real job or living a, living a, you know, life like they kind of had, but. Well, did you there. speak a lot? Did you speak Spanish prior to going to South America or did you go to a country that spoke Spanish? Oh, I, I learned on the road. I mean, mm-hmm. learn, but learn by doing, um, but basically you, you study a little bit, you get the basics, then you just go out and you make a fool of yourself. You talk to people and, you know, you, you figure it out as you go. Um, I went to school. I mean, part of my education, my university education, was in China, so I learned to speak Chinese there. So you know, I speak I speak about three languages now. That's where I was headed with that. So Chinese, Spanish, and English, and English, yeah, yeah. The um, and so how were you able to study in China and South America? What country in South America were you at? Mm-hmm. Oh, man, I, I've traveled to pretty, pretty much all of them. I've never been to Brazil, but, but all the other ones I've, 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 I've traveled to. Um, I mean, it started out, I was just a backpacker, right? I was just a backpacker that, you know, wanted to engage the places I was traveling in a little little, little more closely. So, uh, so I started going to school at this uh, kind of innovative, kind of a hippie program that was started in the 60s of Long Island University. Then it was called the Friends World Program. It was started by a bunch of innovative Quakers. And it, and it morphed into kind of Long Island University um, Global, uh, what were they called? Now, this is called Long, LIU, Long Island University Global. And basically what this school does has is like these centers all over the world, right? So you can go, you can study in Japan, you can study in India, you can study in China. And basically you, you spend three and a half years of your undergraduate education abroad, just learning culture and learning business and learning, you know, how things work on, on you know, the, the international playing field. And it was perfect preparation. I mean, it was exactly what I was looking for at the time. And now I think back on it, it's like, man, these, these people really prepared me for, uh, for the career that, that I live now. Yeah, isn't that a relief to know that? I mean, it appears to me you did it as much as anything just because it, w- it was what was available, but it had really it set the tone and set the direction for where you headed the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, just being a backpacker. I mean, when you're young, it's it's fun for about six months, right? Then it gets a little bit boring because you start doing the same thing over and over. You know, another town, another hostel, another bar, right? And you know, eventually, you know, most people eventually get sick of it and they either go home or they figure out a way to to make something something more of what they're doing and to you know want to like you know build a life. And you know, what I wanted to do, I wanted to learn about culture. I want to learn about people. I want to learn, you know, that, that, that led to an interest in economics, which is kind of weird because that was like the last thing that I was interested in as a kid. But eventually you realize that, you know, you know, um, all like, like a lot of these cultural upheavals, a lot of these, you know, urbanization, a lot of, you know, cultural changes that it, it leads back to economics. 
and that was really the the big puzzle that I that I started working on, and that kind of led to me working for Forbes and you know now now at Bloomberg and and the Guardian. Uh, so help me out. When did you? I guess because your journey started at high school. When did you graduate from high school? I graduated in high school in 1999. Okay, and then uh, took off took off right from there. So, um, I mean, you talk about some huge international names, for Forbes and Blomberg, and today um, you work for The Guardian out of uh, the UK. How do you get contacts with those folks? How do you get credibility? How do you get your name known to them? Oh, man, that, that, that's a really good question. I've, I've always been uh, recruited pretty much. They seem to like recruiting people better than you know, receiving emails and pitches from like random people. They don't know who, who they are. But I mean, I mean, once you kind of um, build up an identity and become uh, recognized as kind of an authority on a particular issue or a particular topic, then the opportunities just, just kind of come flooding in. So I never, I never really had to work too hard to, you know, I mean, like pitching a, an editor at a, at a big publication. That's like, man, that's, that's almost impossible. <laughs> but I've been kind of lucky. But I mean, what I did to kind of, um, to kind of create this situation is that I would pick topics that I would study, um, like new cities in China. Nobody else was really doing that, so I went out and I guess gained the experience and you know, put put some boots on the ground. I spent years going around to these new cities in China, and turned out I was pretty much the only person that that have ever really done that, right? So you know, just just by doing things that nobody else does, you know, like like figuring out things that nobody else is really working on, you kind of make yourself valuable, and you kind of and by being valuable, you kind of kind of get noticed, or you know, in my case, kind of kind of recruited. Well, that was the impression that I got as I stumbled onto you, and I don't recall where I read an article, and then I tried to contact you, and lo and behold, you said yes. Uh, but then I did more research on you, and uh, first of all, I've been enamored with the. Uh, process of the China Europe rail and the old, if you will, rebuilding the Silk Highway from 500 years later, no longer than that, six, seven hundred years later mm-hmm. uh, with rail. High, and um, and I thought it was just an, an amazing idea. And yeah, every time I look it up, you're the only name that really comes up, whether whatever magazine I'm, I, Google takes me to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I call it owning the topic, right? You pick your topic, and then you put out masses of massive amounts of content about that, and kind of surround the ship or uh, like like on that topic, and then all of a sudden you become, you know, the guy, right? You know, the person who knows about this thing, and that's really how you how you make a living, you know, as a journalist or or as an author, right? I mean, a lot of people come into the profession and think, oh yeah, I'm going to go to school for four years, then apply for a job. And they're going to send me around the world to do something cool, right? It doesn't really work like that. It's, I kind of did it backwards, you know, like I go around the world, do something cool and do what you want to do. And then, you know, hope to take that and, and uh, leverage that into like actually getting a job <laughs> to do it. <laughs> we're visiting today with Wade Shepard. He is the author of Ghost Cities of China, but we're picking his brain today about the new China-Europe rail uh, probably the world's foremost expert or ex- or the most accessible one at the very least. Join us after this break for more on the front porch.
Welcome back to the second segment of On the Front Porch. I'm visiting with Wade Shepard today, a journalist and author uh, who has specialized in international economic writing, and he does it by actually having boots on the ground, has spent most of his uh, career, which is basically coming on to 20 years now, traveling places of the world and gathering the economic uh, information, writing about and becoming um, an expert on it by just immersing himself in the topics. Uh, Wade, um, we're going to focus today's for the most part on the uh, China-Europe uh, rail, but you wrote a book a few years about about ghost cities of China, and I was totally amused um, reading about that. I didn't get it, and then on researching you here in the last uh, week when I knew I was going to do this, I find out there's hundreds of them around the developing world, and all of a sudden it makes sense to me. Yeah, yeah, it's um. Yeah, actually, I mean, when when you just kind of look at it and and on the surface, be like, man, these like you know something like you know forty five countries are building like two hundred completely new cities, at least two hundred completely new cities. It seems kind of absurd and kind of crazy, and you kind of you know start just uh, naturally thinking about you know economic bubbles and debt and how it's going to bring down the whole global economy. But when you really look at what's happening. When you really look at how quickly you know many of these countries are developing, and how quick, how rapidly they're urbanizing, how many people are actually moving into cities, and what then the kind of problems that this creates, and then you like you know superimpose the fact that yeah, a lot of these countries are getting more money. They now have middle classes. They have booming upper classes. They have people that kind of want to upgrade you know where they live, and the rationale between you know like completely you know. You know, upgrading and completely like building, you know, just just starting from scratch. I mean, a lot of these like old, you know, historic urban cores, especially in Asia and Africa, they're kind of archaic, archaically designed. It's really, really difficult to modernize. Some of these cities are like thousands of years old, right? So to come into them and, and install like modern like water lines and modern plumbing and modern electricity and you know modern IT uh, infrastructure that is really difficult and it's really expensive. So what a lot of these kind of kind of cities and a lot of these countries are doing is just saying, well, let's uh, let's start over again, right? And they go out, you know, basically to the middle of nowhere, you know, clear out absolutely massive swaths of land and they start building a new city that's kind of based on you know a more modern or what we now call modern uh, urban plan. And then they can put like, you know, it's like kind of just starting over. I mean, because a lot of these cities have just become, well, they, they kind of become, you know, messes of like unplanned sprawl and, you know, just urbanization on a level that they're not really built for. Um, so yeah, actually, look, when it comes down to a lot of these new cities, actually, yeah, as you said, they actually make a lot of sense. Well, the first time I read about it was uh, prior to the Olympics in China, and there was a lot of, well, I, a lot. I had read several stories about it, and it was always presented in a bit of a of a absurd point of view. In other words, uh, this is just crazy. They're building just to be building, and but my question, and the reason I start with this. What And it was a lot of them were interior in China, which China is a similar sized geographic area as the United States, but they don't use much of their interior. 
Was that all part of the idea of eventually doing this China-Europe rail, or are the two not connected at all? Well, the China-Europe rail and, and the New Silk Road or China's Belt and Road Initiative is kind of related to um, to, the, to this movement of kind of um, rebuilding and reestablishing the central and kind of western parts of China. I mean, an equivalent, uh, equivalent kind of way of seeing this is imagine if the United States you know, never developed beyond their East Coast, right? Mm-hmm. Imagine if we never built places, you know, like, like Buffalo or Chicago or, you know, St. Louis or all these inland cities that we built. Imagine if we just stayed, you know, along the East Coast. We probably wouldn't have as powerful of a country as we do today. And around the, in the late 90s, and mid, mid to late 90s, China kind of realized that they had a really big problem. They had these cities on the East Coast, like Shenzhen and Shanghai and Guangzhou and, and, and Beijing and Tianjin, that were becoming some of the most economically vibrant places in the world, right? And some of the most sophisticated cities in the world, right? Meanwhile, they had, you know, uh, most of the country, like the central and western regions, that were literally backwaters. I mean, in Gansu province in western China, at that time, there was over 80 million people still living in caves, I mean, that's not a joke, and that's not an example. Gee, I had no idea. You know, most of the country was was still living in the Stone Age, right? So that kind of disparity between East and West, between the economy of this region and the economy of that region, it's, you know, it, it's, not, it's a social problem, it's a political problem, it's an economic problem, especially since everybody was kind of flooding into these cities of, of the East Coast. In the beginning, China wanted this kind of eastward migration, which was technically illegal because they needed people to build these new cities. They needed people to work in the new factories. And then it kind of became too much for these cities to handle. And then started around 2000, China began a policy, which probably ended up you know, being one of the, the biggest and probably most successful human experiments like ever attempted. It was called the Go West policy. It was a top-down Beijing-driven effort to completely rebuild the country, right? And they started doing that by building, you know, a completely new national transportation grid, you know, like 60,000 kilometers of, of new highways, you know, 26,000 kilometers of high-speed rail lines, hundreds of new airports. And they just completely just went out and kind of superimposed this new grid of transportation over the country as a whole and then told local government officials and, you know, provincial-level governments to build Fill in this grid, you know, build new modern, you know, e, uh, um, infrastructure, build, you know, modern cities. And they did it kind of kind of over the events in almost 20 years. And and now now we now we're looking at places in China like Chongqing and Chengdu and, and Wuhan and Xi'an, kind of these inland cities that were like, you know, coal mining backwaters, you know, 20 years ago are now some of the most sophisticated and economically dynamic places in the world full of, you know, multinational corporations. And now a lot in, in the West, a lot of people still haven't heard about these places, but we will, right? We will because they kind of like, well, they were forced I'll put it that way, to kind of step up on the global stage and to really become destinations for, you know, modern, you know, business. And kind of the China-Europe rail is, and, and the New Silk Road is kind of an extension of that movement because China developed all the way to like their western borders, right? All, I mean, if you can go out to the far, far west of China, 
a place that like very recently it was only like you know people with with camels <laughs> you know like small little like uh, a weaker you know kind of Turkic minority group villages or you know even even Tibetan villages and they completely modernized you know this area and they reached the their far farthest western extremes in places like Horgos and Kashar and then China started looking beyond their own borders like oh yeah now we have these cities in the west how are we going to support them was it was going to be their function and the idea was kind of like taking the west of china and kind of making it into kind of a it sounds weird but kind of a west coast right like on the east coast there's cities like you know shanghai and shenzhen and and, and, and guangzhou that kind of uh, economically prospered because they had you know very good transportation links mixed with you know a manufacturing ecosystems so now they're doing that in in their western cities they built these massive you know logistics hubs these massive transportation zones and around them they built kind of industrial zones and you know these these logistics zones and transportation zones aren't you know ports for ships they're ports for trains they're ports for trucks and you know over the past you know five or so years china and as well as like the countries of central asia and even europe to, to for that matter have kind of like really put a lot of effort and a lot of money into building this new overland transport um, um, ecosystem that links china with all the countries in central asia and uh and europe and it's been um it's just been phenomenal how quickly this has been developing. Well, I think right now we will talk about the route just a little bit. Um, the Silk Road um, uh, that was originally, you know, historic, uh, did it go through, if you will, oh, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iran, Turkey, and that way, or did it go up through what is now Kazakhstan? And what about the new route? What is the new route? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, talking about the, the Silk Road is it's kind of a, a very vague, um, it, it's a very vague topic. I mean, first of all, like when it was actually around, there wasn't a name for it, right? I mean, the, the, the Silk Road, that name was kind of applied retroactively in the 1800s by, you know, some German geographer, right? So they didn't even really call it anything. It was super informal. And the routes went, there were many, many different routes, um, somewhat through Kazakhstan, somewhat through Afghanistan, somewhat, you know, more south, like, like through India. And the interesting thing, you know, about the Silk Road is that it wasn't something that was like kind of started up and then died. It's something that just pops up at various points through history, going back to like, you know, 500, you know, BC, right? Going back to the times of like Alexander the Great and like classical Greece, right? So it's something that will kind of like emerge and like be open for a couple hundred years. And then it kind of breaks apart and goes away and then it comes back and then it goes away and then it comes back and then it goes away. So now what we're kind of looking at is this whole Silk Road concept, this whole movement of Eurasian, Eurasia meaning the, the combined you know, landmass of Europe and Asia kind of rejoining again. And it is, you know, kind of a almost a natural cycle of history, right? I mean, there's nothing really new about it. I mean, this is just the Silk Road, and this is just what the Silk Road does, because eventually, you know, governments, you know, go through processes, kingdoms change, things fall apart, things rejoin together, and now we're at this time when, you know, the Soviet Union broke up. A lot of these countries in Central Asia were kind of like separated and bifurcated, had a lot of political problems, but now many of them are kind of getting their acts together, and they're like, you like, interconnecting well with with the countries like in their regions and also big powers like you know the eu and china and this whole new silk road is is it's, it's coming back and wait i'm gonna have to catch you off we're visiting with wait 
We're visiting with Wade Shepard. He is the author of Ghost Cities of China, probably one of the foremost experts on uh, trade or the new rail between China and Europe. Join us after this for more on the front porch. This is Kyle Bauer. Welcome back to the third segment of On the Front Porch. We're visiting with Wade Shepard, and wow, it's like drinking from a fire hose today. Wade is one of the foremost experts on developing countries, and specifically China. Spent a lot of time there, um, and how their economic development is happening. And I've been looking for a long time on an expert, quite honestly, Wade, and I shared this in an email with you. Uh, Government officials aren't willing and or able to talk much about China because of our tense situation with China right now. Um, I'm going to take us back just a little bit is you've been traveling a lot in China for a long time and continue to have access. That's kind of interesting to me. Uh, How are you able to do that? Well, I'm not so sure if I am actually. I mean, the game has changed significantly in China. Um, and it's not just because of you know, deteriorating like U.S.-China relations. It's that um, the Xi Jinping, the, the current president of China, really kind of initiated a different era of, of Chinese domestic policies. I'll, I'll put it that way. Um, I, mean, I mean, during the whole Jiang Zemin era and the Hu Jintao era, the previous presidents of China, China was kind of like more opening up to the West kind of bringing in, you know, foreign companies, bringing in, you know, lots of different foreigners, foreign expertise and foreign talent. And it kind of looked like China. I mean, China has always done things in the way that China does things. But it was kind of looking like China was going on more of a path of what we would call, you know, internationally kind of normal, right? You know, kind of like, you know, the other countries of like the WTO and stuff like that. And then uh, Xi Jinping came in. He's kind of this old school old school communist. I mean, his, his dad was, you know, one, one of the original communists with Mao, right? Kind of came in and started instituting like some pretty severe, you know, domestic policies uh, under the mass of like, you know, anti-corruption and basically whatever. But he, he was essentially able to um, obtain a degree of power over the country that, you know, probably no president has had, you know, maybe maybe going up back to like Deng, Deng Xiaoping, you know, and at the end of the 80s. And um, part of this, part of, part of his, uh, process of taking control, taking control of media, taking control of foreign research institutes. I mean, and talking about access in China, I mean, the New York Times doesn't have access in China. Neither does the Wall Street Journal, right? right. But they want to go see something, they go there with, you know, under the watchful eye of, you know, China's, you know, propaganda supervisors by their, by their you know, media and journalism boards, right? And back when I did the bulk of my research, I mean, nobody was watching me, right? Nobody really cared what I did. I was able to go out and basically do whatever I want and talk to everyone I want, wanted to, and people were open to talking about, open to show me things, open to tell me, open about telling me things. That's not the case anymore. Now, even for like, you know, even the most benign topics, it's really hard to get anybody in China to talk about them because they don't know what will happen in the future. You know, they don't mm-hmm. know how what what they could what they say today, um, how that could you know come back and kind of bite them in the future. So people have become very tight lipped. You know, the Western media is being watched over. I mean, I believe now that even even foreign news agencies need to keep their data on you know servers in China, which theoretically the Chinese the Communist Party has access to. So access to the country has really been. Uh, I mean, they they you know, created kind of this chokehold 
on, uh, on, on the information coming out of it. And they decided they want to control the message that people hear, you know, about, about the country. And, you know, even some of the biggest uh, international, you know, media sources are oftentimes grasping at straws for, you know, data that they can get about China. And, um, I don't know. I mean, I haven't been back in, in over a year, so I'm not, I'm not so sure if they, they've even let me back in at this point. Yeah, that's what I wondered about that after what you said. I'm thinking, gosh, as much as you're written up um, around the world, I would assume that getting giving a visa to you might be uh, very low on the likelihood because of all your past <laughs> experience. And not that you've at all been critical. Yeah, I haven't yeah. read a single thing uh, that you've been critical of the uh, Chinese um, at all. It's just that you certainly are more knowledgeable than most, and that was my perception the Chinese right now aren't much for letting that out. Um, well, so back to the routes. Um, when you when you look at the fastest way to get, or the least number of political entities that you have to get through, the northern route through Kazakhstan would be the easiest. And from what I hear, Kazakhstan has a huge amount of resources that they would love to sell lots of places in the world. Uh, but I have understood the history if, of the Silk Road is probably more prominent the Southern route. Um, yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, I mean, you're really hitting the nail on the head here. Uh, what we need to realize that during the end of the Soviet period and even kind of um, kind of kind of this era, you know, like right after the breakup of the Soviet Union, a lot of these countries in Central Asia were in disarray, right? So we kind of forgot, you know about what they can offer and what they have. We just kind of think about places like Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan as being these backwaters that don't really have, you know, you know, much of an economy. I mean, you know, I mean, we, we associate Kazakhstan with oil and that's about it, but that's not the truth, right? During the Soviet times, you know, Russia essentially used many of these Central Asian countries as places uh, for agriculture, as places for farming. That's where they got a huge amount of their grain and, and like, like other like, like, uh, foodstuffs from. And now that these countries are kind of getting their act together a little more, they've like rebuilt their infrastructure, rebuilt their highways, rebuilt their rail lines, you know, built new airports. Now these places are kind of rising up to be in, you know, agricultural export countries again. And China knows this, right? And one of the reasons why they are linking in with these countries, you know, via rail and, and via, 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 via very other, various other transportation routes is because they have, they're an alternative source of, of grain. They're an alternative source of agricultural foodstuffs uh, that wasn't previously being tapped because it couldn't be tapped because there's no way to get this stuff out of these countries, you know, economically before the, these rail lines were built, before these new highways were built. But now, you know, via the new Silk Road, now all of a sudden these countries have the ability to become, you know, agricultural powerhouses again, which kind of leads into one of the main reasons of China kind of creating this Belt Road, the kind of creating this new Silk Road, is it essentially gives the country a back door, right? You know, previously most Chinese trade went by sea, by the East Coast through the Strait of Malacca. The Strait of Malacca between, uh, between Singapore and Indonesia is predominantly controlled by the U.S. Navy, right? Now, let's think, you know, 5, 10, you know, 20 years down the line. Now, what if the USA decided to 
you know, blockade this for Chinese ships. What would China do? We would essentially have China in a stranglehold, right? Well, of course, China knows this, right? So starting, you know, actually, actually, even before the Belt and Road Initiative was announced in 2013, China started developing new trade routes going overland to Europe through Central Asia. And they connect these new trade routes in with like ports in Pakistan and, and Iran and, and now Oman. And um, they essentially gave themselves a backdoor for getting the products they need you know, to, to survive and to, to not completely economically collapse in the event of, you know, if things melt down between in, in U.S.-China relations. Well, I've understood that one of the biggest investors in Pakistan, if not by far the largest international investor in Pakistan, is China, because China gets most of their oil from Iran, and so therefore Pakistan is a very, very significant part of their connection to Iran, especially Overland. Exactly, exactly. Now, here's the thing about China. Um, China doesn't need to do business in accordance to economic fundamentals, meaning like profit and loss, right? Because the government owns, you know, a large amount of the big companies. So therefore they can like engage these like long-term, you know, very, very, you know, like economic resource heavy, you know, projects without needing to, you know, make a profit, without needing to make money. So essentially, you know, the government's able to pursue their political objectives using economic engines without fear of these companies going under or without fear of, you know, stockholders selling off their stock, without the need to, for these companies to essentially make a profit. And that gives them a huge advantage when it comes to countries like Pakistan or, you know, even Afghanistan or even dealing with Iran, you know, countries that currently um, are a mess, right, but have a lot of future potential. So China is able to go in, you know, spend the big money, redevelop these countries and establish ties with them, you know, for the long term that could become very, very profitable, you know, both economically and politically and geopolitically um, in the future. And, yeah, I mean, those oil supply routes is are like one of the primary reasons why China kind of opened up this back door, you know, via, via the new Silk Road. Are they received well through the Middle East? The Chinese, of course, I mean, certainly people like their money, but I, I have often heard that, that people, are, people around the, I'll say the Middle East and Europe, have been skeptical about long-term investments or large investments from China because they didn't trust them. Yeah, that's, that's very true. <laughs> that's very true. Um, yeah, China has not, during the first five years of the Belt and Road Initiative, kind of um, done much to kind of, um, kind of, kind of correct the, the negative image that a lot of countries have of them. I mean, we're talking about like really huge. I mean, when you invest in, when you invest in big infrastructure projects in countries that have kind of governments that aren't very stable, where there's a lot of corruption, when there's a lot of um, lot, lot, lot of fractions and a lot, lot of different sides, and especially political systems that are, that are a mess, there's a good chance that your projects that you're investing in aren't going to go so well. And at this stage of kind of Belt and Road development, some of China's biggest and most vibrant trade partners on this whole, you know, New Silk Road thing are countries that have like a lot of political problems. So that kind of like extends to, you know, China's projects in these countries, like take Sri Lanka, for example, right? China signed all these big deals with the previous government. While that government gets voted out of power, the next government doesn't want to do these projects anymore. What do you do, right? <laughs> well, the country has massive amount of debt to China. They signed it. It was their project. They went looking for funding. They went to China. China is pretty much the only country in the world crazy enough to fund, or pretty much the only country in the world that had the objective. 
to fund these like kind of kind of crazy projects. And now the country has to pay, you know, and now everyone's like, oh, China caught them in a debt trap. No, Sri Lanka caught themselves in a debt trap because previous, I mean, because it's a, it's a really kind of, um, it's, a, it's now a vacillating democracy where there's a lot of corruption and a lot of kind of foul play. And this is kind of the countries that are kind of partner and with China. So, so I mean, the opportunities that China even has to like kind of, you know, you know, re- um, renew their name or give themselves a more positive image. It's, it's really being uh, being really really being stomped upon just based on the fact that a lot of countries they're investing in are not you know the the most uh, most trustworthy of, of of partners. And you know the, the same goes for for Pakistan and you know Malaysia now. You know there was that big scandal in Malaysia, a lot of Belt and Road projects, kind of uh, you know giving big kickbacks to to the government and stuff like that. And yeah, I mean a lot of them are, are pretty are pretty much. Mess. However, um, China's thinking long term. These are all short term problems. China's thinking, you know, 50, 60, 100 years from now. So we're visiting with Wade Shepard. Wade is a journalist uh, for The Guardian and uh, the UK, and he's also the author of a book on ghost cities of China. Join us after this break for our final segment of On the Front Porch. Welcome back to the final segment of On the Front Porch. Uh, just my pleasure to be visiting today with Wade Shepard, uh, probably the foremost expert on the growth and economic uh, strategies of China and uh, just able to bring it all down to a level that's certainly easy to understand. Thank you so much, Wade. Wade, uh, Let's talk about the rail in this final segment. What is the New Silk Road, the rail that's connecting China and Europe, going to look like? What are its two endpoints, if you will? Um, it appears that the route is um, there's maybe be more than one. And how many rails will it be? What will the trains look like? Give us an idea of the of the uh, physical aspects of it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, this whole whole China Europe kind of kind of rail network it, it all started. Um, it all started in the late two thousands um, with with various. I mean, basically, um, when China started developing their inland and western regions, they encouraged a lot of multinational companies, a lot of multinational tech firms, to move west to places like Chongqing and Chengdu. The problem is these places are located far inland. So it gave these companies kind of a, a logistical conundrum. Are we going to like actually ship our products thousands of kilometers east to the port to just to ship them by sea, like all the way west again? And HP, especially like, like Hewlett Packard, who went to Chongqing, they decided, no, we're just going to go straight west. So what they did is, is that this, uh, this Hewlett Packard, you know, logistics team, like almost single handedly, figured out a way to get a regular rail service going from Chongqing in central China all the way to, to Duisburg in Germany, right? And they cobbled this network together. They did it. They got it working. And then they had like a once a week, you know, regular, tra- uh, regular train going between um, China and Europe. And then in 2013, Xi Jinping introduces his, you know, Belt and Road Initiative, uh, the New Silk Road. And 
this, these rail, this, this, these trains all of a sudden became the vanguard of this movement, right? And then all of a sudden the Chinese government got into like backing them and financing them and this network just grew. It grew, grew, and grew. It's grown exponentially every year. Now there's about 45 different, you know, China to Europe rail lines connecting, I don't know, pretty much every city, you know, in, in China with, uh, with cities in Germany, logistical hubs like, like Wutz in Poland, Duisburg, Hamburg, and then, um, also, uh, also, I'm sorry, uh, London Gateway, London in, in the UK. And they kind of made this within a matter of a few years, kind of created a new way to transport products very, very quickly and relatively cheaply between China and Europe. And as of now, there are three main routes. One route is the, tra- is the Trans-Siberian. It goes directly north from China um, into Russia and hooks up with the old Trans-Siberian line. And that goes, you know, straight to, to Europe, um, enters Europe and via Poland, well, enters the EU and Poland. And then there's a central route that kind of goes like directly across China, um, goes, you know, you know from, from Lin Yungang on the coast out to, to Horvos in the west and goes through Kazakhstan. And then, you know, also enters the EU via Poland. And then there's this more southerly route that's starting to be developed, but this is one that completely bypasses Russia and Russian sanctions, which goes, you know, via Kazakhstan um, and then goes to the Caspian Sea and then goods, the trains are actually ferried across the Caspian Sea to Azerbaijan, where they get on this brand new rail line that the government there just built and goes straight to Turkey. Um, so, so within a really, really short amount of time, like um, our, our perspectives, our paradigm of, you know, transportation between Europe and, and Asia has been like absolutely, completely revolutionized. That's just fascinating. I mean, number one, I didn't know. I mean, it's amazing to think that HP was the um, company that that basically pioneered this, and then that there's so many. You said 45 different technical routes that they could take? Yeah, I mean, they, they go along three main lines, right. but the, the feeder lines that go into them, yeah, there's about 45, there's 45 different services. That's, that's what they call them. So um, those are probably financed and ran if you will by various companies along the way in other words there's probably some european trains that are running into china and some chinese trains that are running into europe mm-hmm. yeah it's, it's a very it's a very multinational um partnership here i mean like like a lot of these trains are actually being handled by you know logistics companies from belarus and russia and then there's like a lot of european firms like dhl dhl was really really instrumental in kind of bringing this network together that are kind of benefiting from it but a lot of the funding does come from the chinese government it comes from you know the central government and then also provincial level government governments and they heavily subsidize these trains because they want to keep the prices low and the prices competitive but to make it attractive for customers and kind of what China gets out of these, I mean, a lot of people say, oh, this China to Europe rail is unsustainable because it's being subsidized by, by the Chinese government. Wrong. You know, as we see with a lot of things with China, the Communist Party, you know, is okay with paying for stuff that they want. And to a certain degree, these trains have kind of become the new pandas, like panda diplomacy when China has like a strong tie with another country. As a sign of friendship, they'll give them a, a panda, right? Now they give them a train, right? <laughs> oh, China wants you know, better ties with like, you know, you know, Czech Republic. Oh, we'll go send a train there, right? <laughs> and now Czech producers can like send their products back to China via this new rail line, right? So it's kind of become like kind of this rail diplomacy that's, uh, you know, kind of like, you know, you know, kind of shifted something that was done. These, these, these China, Europe 
trains were done purely for economic reasons because you can get products cheaper and it, uh, you can get products you know, between you know the two regions of the world much, much quicker than sea at a price that's much, much lower than, than air. But China has kind of taken you know this project that was originally done for economic fundamentals and they kind of gave it a, a geopolitical uh, a geopolitical angle, I guess you can say, which you know nobody that's really you know, involved in it really cares about because you know they have their trains right. They can now ship their products cheaper. They can now you know save money or or even make more money because of this you know rail network. The network that's become very much a, a Chinese uh, political geopolitical uh, move or maneuver. Well, and you're talking about countries that a lot of times have been shut out of international travel or international uh, trade and international significance because of their central locations, and now they are on the main road. Exactly, exactly. They have become linked in, um, not just by the rail lines, but new highways, too. I mean, the World Bank is, you know, pri- pri- primarily funded this road, longest road in the world called called the Western China-Western Europe Highway that goes from the coast of China all the way to St. Petersburg in Russia. It goes right through Kazakhstan. So now all of a sudden, Kazakhstan, you know, has this uh, new new kind of uh, a nervous system that goes through the center of the country. You know, this is like, you know, a country that's all like, you know, it's the Eurasian steppes, it's all deserts and like backwater. But now they have like some of the most sophisticated, you know, like like transportation links, uh, like in the world, going right through the center, right right through the center of the country. So yeah, I mean, a lot of times these like former backwaters weren't really able to develop or interconnect with the neighbors because that just wasn't infrastructurally possible. But now it is because they went out and built these new highways and rail lines and and airports and new cities and logistics hubs. And now all of a sudden, like these countries that you know we never heard of before, these countries that were you know even a few years ago were completely irrelevant, are now rising on the geoeconomic uh, playing field and are and will be significant players uh, in in the future. Well, Wade, we just have about a minute. I wanted to talk about your book, Ghost Cities of China. I hope to have you back on here in the future to talk about all the ghost cities that you have discovered around the world. But tell us about uh, Ghost Cities of China, how to get it, and, um, and just a quick overview of it. Yeah, Ghost Cities of China, that, that was my first book. It kind of chronicles the two and a half years I spent traveling to China's underpopulated uh, new urban regions. And you I mean you can buy the book on Amazon, you can buy it through my publisher who is Zed Books based in the UK or University of Chicago is the books distributor in the USA. But basically if you just do a search for Ghost Cities of China, you'll you'll find ways to get it if if you if you want it. And yeah, basically yeah, that was my that was my first uh, first big book and my first big break into writing and publishing and I don't know, it was, it was a real fun time, you know. I, I guess you can call it fun. You know, traveling around the cities with all people for two and a half years and I'd love to come on, you know, at some point in the future and, and talk a little bit more about that. Well, we've been talking with Wade Shepard, originally grew up in rural community in upstate New York, uh, just took off to travel the world, got his education, is now probably one of the most foremost writer on uh, world economics in developing countries, certainly having to do with transportation. Join us more every day at this time for more On the Front Porch.